Oh, good. Good morning. Good morning. This is the day the Lord has made. And I am very excited to have the opportunity and the honor to be able to introduce our teacher for the next five weeks to you, Andrew Hubsch, and just some little information about him that you probably won't read anywhere. There's some you will and some <laughs> that you won't. What you will read is that he is an editor, that he is a, an author, a published author, that he is an amazing writer, that he loves history, that he loves historic novels. You can read that in his um, bio, you can read that online, he's got a website, he's amazing. He came to our community last summer. He and his wife Vashti have been here since the summer and, and how I feel about Andrew and Vashti is that we all need to get to know them because they have the gift of hospitality and I had the opportunity to introduce them to a near and dear friend of uh, my husband and, and mine from years and years ago in Philadelphia and Andrew and Vashti came back and said, we feel like we've known her our whole lives. And the email I got from Vicki said, we, I feel like we've known, I've known them my whole life. And I thought, wow, Vicki, I've known you my whole life. <laughs> so to the fact that you can know Andrew and Vashti just in a couple days just speaks to who he is and who they are. And so let us be open to what he has to teach us. He is called by God to this, and I'm really excited. So. I'm going to open in prayer and then turn it over to Andrew. Please join me. Creator God, the world and all that is in it is yours. We thank you. We thank you that you care so much and that because you have loved us, we may love each other. We come gathered today to learn just a little bit more about how to follow you, to learn a little bit more about how to obey you, to just have a little bit more of you in our lives today. And so please inspire us. Come to us, Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom. And we thank you for the faith that you have given us. We ask for you to multiply that because as you said to Abraham, it is your faith that is your righteousness. We thank you for that message today. We lift up our worship service to you and just ask that you call all of us there who you want to touch. Thank you for Andrew's willingness to share with us and may you be with him. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray, we pray. Amen. Amen. Andrew. Thank you very much, Terry. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Jim and Rich, for the invitation, the opportunity to come and, and speak with you today and the next couple weeks um, as the slide kind of details, my name is Andrew Hupsch, and I write historical novels. Chiefly, they are set in one place, however, be, uh, and it's all American history, but each prologue begins someplace else and follows an individual or group as they are journeying to this one representative piece of real estate here uh, in America. And so as that, um, my research takes me farther afield than just American studies. And this five-week course is specially designed for the Westminster class as a member of the class uh, since last summer, or I guess since the uh, September classes. I uh, had an opportunity to see some amazing people up here and to follow in their footsteps is, is rather humbling. And I also have come to appreciate the, the intellect of the group and the give and take um, when somebody like John David Geib is here talking and sharing with us. So if at any point as we're, we're going through this today or, or uh, through the rest of the course, and you have uh, something that you want to know more about, feel free to 
uh, indicate that. We do have a microphone uh, so that the people who are going to be listening to this on the web and or later at home uh, can hear your questions. So um, if you have something that you know, I've said or you see on a slide that you want to know more about, do not hesitate to indicate that and go to the mic and then we can explore it some further as you would see fit. So uh, as Terry very kindly mentioned, my wife and I are happily here uh, in Canton and we're welcomed immediately to the CPC community. And so it is with a great delight that I get to share a little bit of, of myself with you. Uh, this is the full spread of the novels that I'm writing, essentially a la Dickens, they are installments, uh, one volume per year. So the, the website is listed on the handout that you all have for your further exploration, but uh, it, today and going forward, it's not about the messenger. It's all about the message. And Father, forgive, as we will learn today and uh, most poignantly when we come to Palm Sunday, Father, forgives is the theme. Um, and as with any good story, there is a, a central focus of it, but there's also a prologue and there will be an epilogue. The central focus of today's lesson, today's stories, and they're, and they're supposed to be human-scale stories so that uh, these are real people who, in moments of genuine peril, exemplified what I personally would wish that I uh, would do in facing those same circumstances. Uh, not everybody can, not everybody does, but, but uh, these are some of my, um, of my personal heroes. A few of them do appear in the narrative that I'm writing, and this is how I came to learn the rest of their stories. So the main focus will be 1938 in Europe. However, it begins, uh, our story today begins in 1917 as America is about to enter the great war that is already consuming the European continent. And in Philadelphia, the Quaker community, the Society of Friends, uh, and the conscientious objectors there wanted to figure a way that they could stay out of jail and contribute to the national effort and do so and honor their ideals and their own religion, their tenets. So 14 of them came up with the idea of the American Friends Service Committee, which specifically, uh, the, the service that they envisioned was providing uh, medical and ambulance service to frontline troops, as well as serving all of the people who were displaced in Europe. And that's what they did beginning a few weeks after America entered the war in April of 1917. By the conclusion of the, the war uh, a year later, Herbert Hoover, who was in charge of the American effort to rebuild Europe, um, liked what he'd seen with the American Friends Service Committee, and he was a Quaker himself, and he put them in charge of handling the, the ruins that was Germany and, and much of Central Europe. And so for over five years, the AFCS, SC, SC, um, was the, the agency using federal monies to then feed up to upwards of 1.2 million children a day. So the American Friends Service Committee, uh, Rufus Jones on the right, was one of the co-founders, and that's uh, some of what they were doing in the teens. Um, they, they were integral to the nations of Europe, Germany most especially, uh, getting through the post-war era after the Great War. Now, of course, as we all either know from history or from our own lives um, or family members, that what followed in Europe uh, became an uglier and uglier place. So by 1933, as an Austrian is taking control of Germany proper, a young theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, within days after Adolf Hitler had assumed power and granted himself all kinds of 
titles and authorities, went on the radio and said that the Augsburg Church, the Lutheran Church in Germany, was bankrupt for not standing up to this person. And that uh, the, the most supreme being was not a man, but was uh, the son of man, was God himself. And what do you know, mysteriously, in mid-broadcast, that uh, went off the air. But Bonhoeffer persisted. He, um, he then went on to found something called the Confessing Church, where uh, he proclaimed the centrality of Jesus Christ and his redemption, um, and that um, whereas the Augsburg Church, the Lutheran Church in Germany, wanted to emphasize that render under Caesar, that Bonhoeffer uh, very uh, concretely wanted to live out his faith I in all corners of it. Now, I realize that's a lot of text, uh, but th the main point is that uh, the Bonhoeffer in various guises over the next uh, decade was um, a, a force, a moral force for good in and out of Germany. And skipping up to 1938. So in 1930, by 1938, in Germany proper, that there'd been all kinds of uh, sequential restrictions against what the Jews could and could not do. However, there hadn't been a, a, an organized pogrom, as they say. Um, but in March of 1938, Austria uh, was miraculously annexed by Germany, and it became uh, a place for the Germans to experiment on how they were going to uh, deal with the German population proper. And so within days of uh, Austria being annexed, that all of the anti-Jewish things that have been done in Germany applied to Austria and more. But recognizing the dangers, and at the time in Vienna, the capital of Austria, it was 10% of the population was Jewish, more than half the doctors, professional classes were, were Jewish, 178,000 people uh, Jewish in Vienna. And uh, within a day of the annexation of Germany, that an Anglican priest who was attached to the embassy, the British embassy in Vienna, he recognized uh, the clear danger signs. And so to his friends, he offered a very uh, rare and controversial option. In the Jewish faith, in the Jewish tradition, that if you accept baptism, you reject the faith of your fathers. However, given the danger signs, that were all too clear in early March of 1938 that this Anglican priest, by the name of Hugh Grimes, uh, that eight people took him up on that offer the day after uh, Germany annexed Austria. And the practical application uh, of this in, in the real world of the moment was that, that that baptismal certificate, which very kindly Reverend Grimes backdated um, to show that they were you know, baptized as children, that it, it provided them, um, in essence, an exit visa, an out. And Grimes then continued that for the next several months until um, it became something that his uh, minders in England proper were aware of. So he was called in July of 1938 to go back and explain how this small chapel that seats 135 was and had baptized all of 50 people in about a decade was now baptizing over 100 a day. But he knew, the, he knew what was happening, and so did the, the people who were beseeching him for 
any kind of assistance that he might provide. Well, the gentleman who, yes, I'm sorry. Yes, Jim. Just to clarify what, what you're talking about, is this, these were Jews from Germany that were being baptized in order to uh, escape the, the perils of being in Germany? Close. Uh, uh, technically, still in Austria, although by this point, Austria is considered a province of Germany after the annexation. So uh, they are Viennese Jews um, who are mostly assimilated, was the term, as opposed to shtetl Jews um, from the Eastern Europe end of things. So they'd been a part of Vienna, Vienna life uh, for decades, for generations. And now they realize that their, their loss of property, their loss of standing, their loss of uh, being able to do their occupations, that they needed to leave. And in order to leave, there were all these bureaucratic impediments, including having to turn over large portions of all of your net worth just to get the paperwork to get out. Um, so because of the baptisms that Hugh Grimes and then his, his colleague, Fred Collard, who followed him, and also a retired Anglican priest who came back to do this, um, that over the course of about six months, they baptized 1,800 Viennese Jews who lived. All of them, to my understanding, were able to get the other paperwork necessary, get out with their lives and you know, some, some degree of, of uh, their personal uh, wealth. Yes, ma'am. What's that, Chris? Did the church receive the monies? You said half of their net worth were, were, was being turned over? No. D did the church receive anything for baptizing them? No. Uh, the, the, the church and these two gentlemen did not want any money. Um, they, they, uh, they were four-day uh, courses on how to be an Anglican, and by the end of it, they received their baptismal certificate and a common book of prayer, a book of common prayer. Um, but no, the, 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 the applicants didn't pay any money to the Anglican Church. The monies went where? Uh, the monies chiefly went to the German state. Uh, it, it was, and again, this, this is background, um, and it's, it's salient. Um, at the time, there were conflicting forces going on within the German hierarchy, um, one of them wanting to be rid of the Jews, but the other wanting as much of their wealth as possible. So in order to go through the proper channels to get out, required handing over to the state your title and, and all of your uh, you know, p possessions, essentially, um, and paying enormous percentages out. So by the time that you were able to leave, you, you had a stack of paperwork and a very small pile of money. Um, so because of these conversion, these baptismal certificates, that they were now considered Christians and they didn't have to go through some of the dispossession that the state was now requiring of them. You have a question, Jim? Is there any record historically, did, did the Jews who had been baptized and became de facto Anglicans, did they consider themselves to have become Anglicans or were they still Jews in their heart? By and large, they, w once they were able to leave Europe, uh, they reverted to Judaism. However, th there are some um, who are today part of the Anglican tradition. Um, but in, in the moment when, when this program, which was unauthorized um, from Canterbury, but the bishop who oversaw these two priests sequentially, um, he'd given his okay, because as early as 1933, again, when Hitler took power, this bishop 
in England recognized the threat against both the, uh, the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church and wanted for the Anglican Church to stand with them and to stand strong against totalitarianism. And the Anglican Church at the time did not. So he gave a secret kind of blessing to his priests in the field to do what they felt, what they felt was best to serve people and let God sort it out later. So both Reverend Hugh Grimes and Reverend Fred Collard are personal heroes of mine. However, you'll never find their names on the wall of, of righteous people in Israel because the conversion process is genuinely uh, troubling to Jews uh, since part of one of their tenets is that to be baptized means that you are, are literally renouncing your faith. So given the choice of death for renouncing their faith, that some people stepped forward and uh, gladly took what was being offered uh, from the Anglicans. Anglicans. Meanwhile, coming from rather left field on the other side of the globe is a remarkable gentleman named Ho Fang Shen. And at seven, his father died and his mother couldn't support the family and they became wards essentially of a Norwegian Lutheran mission in the Hunan province where they lived. And as such, um, Ho, which is his last name, um, became a Lutheran at a young age. And after going to university in China, he ultimately went to get his doctorate uh, in political science in Munich in 1932 and from the government uh, sought and found a posting in the Foreign Service. By 1937, uh, he was the first secretary for the embassy that was in Vienna. However, in March of 1938, when Austria gets taken over, it's no longer a country, so the embassy is closed. But because it's important, they want to open a consul there, and so in May of 1938, he becomes the consul general for Vienna, where he's been working for about a year. And he's conversant in Mandarin, in English and German. And he recognizes that he's got a unique opportunity, that Singapore, a free city technically, is controlled by the Japanese, but he has a stack of visas which are good for Singapore. So everybody who comes to his door, mostly Jews, everybody who comes to his door is granted an exit visa with a destination of Shanghai. Sorry, yeah, Shanghai. Um, and with that exit visa, because it shows that the person who wants to leave has a place to go, um, and that's an important step in getting out of Vienna at the time, that it's estimated over 3,000 people were able, thanks to his foresight and, and effort, to be able to leave. Now, for him, it was a manifestation of his faith. That again, uh, he's Chinese by birth, he's Confucian, uh, in his orientation, but he's Lutheran in his upbringing and, and the faith that he carried for the rest of his life. And he actually lives to be 96 years old. He only died in 1997. Now, his boss, who was the uh, ambassador in Berlin, found out fairly quickly what Ho was doing and wanted to shut it down. And he thought perhaps that Ho was receiving financial benefit for giving out all of these visas, which he wasn't. He was doing it because he, he felt it was a service. Um, this is a copy of his passport at the time. So, 1938, 
the world is turned upside down for Vienna, which had been this protected bubble for uh, almost a decade. And one of the things as a writer, as an historian, as a novelist that I think is important to try and, and remember is the context of the, of the times. That whereas in the 1700s or even uh, in the 1800s, it took a long time for information to get from one side of the Atlantic to the other. However, at this moment in time, between uh, radio and e even the, the steamboat services, that same day, next day, within two days, information from one continent is being received on the other. So uh, perhaps the general public was not acutely aware of the, the dangers, the increasing issues that were coming to the fore in Vienna and then in a moment in Berlin, but people who were paying attention had contemporaneous information. They, they knew that something was afoot and it was not healthy for a whole, uh, sec or whole percentage of the population. So in Vienna as well, there's a, a British passport office which is overwhelmed. And again, I, I realize it's a fair bit of text here, but the, the salient point is just the, 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 the crush of people who wanted to leave before something else befell them. And I, at the time, um, the, the Germans were taking men, they were taking people they felt were dissidents, people uh, who they felt you know, were, were not supportive of their vision of the Third Reich. And the, the flame is getting hotter is the point, literally. Um, so through the summer of 1938, um, incidences begin increasing and Vienna has been um, a sort of test case for what the Germans would like to do with Germany proper. And what, be, what was a singular event of uh, burning down a synagogue which was a major step, then became, um, let's, let's try it out a few more times, building to um, an excuse that they uh, created in early November when over the course of two days, beginning in Berlin and then extending out throughout Germany, that an event which we would call Kristallnacht or the night of the broken glass, the day of the broken glass, where over 30,000 men were arrested, hundreds of synagogues burned, and 30 or more thousand German stores and such were all looted. So that happens November 9th and November 10th, 1938. By the 11th in the US, information is, is coming back that something major has occurred. Whether it was organized from on high or not is unclear, but the suffering of peoples in Europe on a massive scale is perceived. So the American Friends Service Committee, aha, those people at the beginning of this, the AF, SC, um, want to do something. Having been in Germany and in Austria serving food to needy people uh, for decades, um, well, most especially after World War I, but e even between the wars, that they've been on the ground and they want to find a way to serve. The, the people who are displaced, if they can, they want to facilitate getting people who want to leave out. So the Three Wise Men is, uh, actually a facetious reference which you'll understand in a sec because uh, the, the trio who go are themselves, I think the youngest was 59, the oldest was 75, and they were all ra rather tweedy fellows, um, but 
as you might or might not know, in the Quaker tradition, things are done unanimously. And it took uh, a couple weeks of going through proper channels and getting denied before uh, consensus came about within the AFSC to send a delegation to Berlin. So on the RMS Queen Mary, the the three of them set off, and this is what Rufus Jones, who was leading the three-person delegation, uh, had to say as they were about to uh, head to Berlin, not knowing what they would find, but they were leaving behind, you know, retirement in his case, or their jobs, their families, uh, to go to a place that they knew had just erupted literally in flames. So with a bit of humility, the three of them set off. Five days later, Rufus Jones, Robert Yarnell, and George Walton, the headmaster, the three of them arrived to Berlin. And this is in the morning paper when they get there. Yes, the, the, the dear and lovely Dr. Goebbels, who at the time was the head of the Metro Police for Berlin and had set up what we call Kristallnacht, although it wasn't acknowledged at the time that he was the architect, um, had this bit of, of wisdom, if you will, um, in his party organ, um, denouncing the... the, the yes, ma'am. When they came over, wh- their intent was what? Humanitarian aid? Did they bring money? Were they there to feed them? What exactly was their mission to sure. go over there? Um, the, the mission was finding out how any of these potential needs uh, could be met. The, uh, the AFSC was ready, willing, and able to go into uh, any areas uh, on either side of a conflict to serve the people. They, they had a specific uh, desire, if possible, understanding that a lot of people had been arrested. They didn't know the total number, um, and it was a little over 30,000, but to see if, if, uh, if any of those could be granted provisional release that they would emigrate. So the AFSC um, knew that there was going to be uh, suffering, not just for Jews, but for other people. Um, you know, if your business was next to the Jewish business that just got burned down, yours might have gotten burned down too. So uh, there, there was a great deal of need that the three of them were, were there to assess. Um, they did have money that had been pledged to them um, and more you know, pledges awaiting once the dimensions of the problem were recognized. But when you have uh, folks like this who are delighting in, in in the prospect of, of you even appealing to them, well, it, it was a, a tough hill. However, and uh, I'll talk while you can read this, the three of them, after a few days, were ultimately able to get an audience with uh, an awful man named uh, Reinhard Heydrich, um, who had later renown, um, and he was in the Gestapo. And they went in and had to be frisked and all that stuff and go through all the levels of security to the inner sanctum of the Gestapo where they have a half hour meeting with two of the aides to this gentleman with the other, you know, with the head person watching um, and 
they present themselves with all the humility that they can, explaining how uh, for a generation that the AFSC served the German people irrespective of the politics, did not proselytize, they were just there to uh, recognize the humanity at need, in need, and to serve it. And so after half an hour, um, the, the two aides went to talk to their boss, and in the meantime, these three gentlemen, uh, the headmaster, the retired philosophy professor, and the uh, manufacturing gentleman from Philadelphia, the, the three emissaries, the three Quakers, rather than talk and strategize, the three of them had a prayer service, which in the Quaker tradition is you're kind of silently together until somebody feels the spirit move you. Well, during their time together that they just quietly prayed together. They're in the headquarters of the Gestapo. So it was rather astonishing when the aides came back and said, everything that you've asked, we are happy to agree to, whether it's release of, of prisoners, uh, whether it's access to provide uh, food and, and such to the people in need. And Dr. Jones asked for a copy of that in writing such that they could show it to whoever was necessary. And it was explained to them, as today, that um, everything in that room was recorded, so there was no need for any paperwork. Um, so what, why I, I wanted to include this long quotation from Dr. Jones was he didn't know what the reaction would be. I mean, he'd certainly read about these people, and he himself had had some dealings with them, but to go into the headquarters of uh, the, the folks who are at the helm of a horror show and to treat them with respect and to get re respect back. Um, for him, it was a prayerful moment indeed, and because of this petition, that over the course of the next 19 months, I guess it was, that 960 of the folks who'd been arrested uh, on November 10th were ultimately released and emigrated. Um, so the direct effect of these three gentlemen, these three wise men that uh, Goebbels sarcastically called them, was that they were able to effectuate the release and life of nearly a thousand people. So carrying us forward beyond 1938, my hero, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, he, he left Germany three times, twice to the United States, once to serve German churches in Britain, and each time he felt the call to go back because he didn't feel that he, in honor, could serve in a post-war Germany if he hadn't been there to bear the hardships that his fellow citizens did. Um, now, he was a voice of opposition, and he was a voice that was often silenced, and sometimes um, as a pastor, as a theologian, uh, trying to run a seminary for uh, the church that he created called the Confessing Church to uh, take the place of the Augsburg Lutheran Church in Germany. Um, he was hounded, but at the same time, he still, uh, he stayed. Even as he uh, accompanied siblings um, to safety in Switzerland, he went back. Even as he went on uh, missions over to Scandinavia, he went back to Germany. He knew the dangers, but he also, he bore the guilt more than any writer that I, I've come across um, at least, you know, on the religious side of things, 
that Bonhoeffer um, is somebody who has absorbed the guilt and feels that in order to expiate it, he needs to, to live it. And unfortunately uh, for him, that he became too much of a thorn in the side of the, the power structure. And in 1944, he and some colleagues were arrested. This is a prison shot, Tegel prison outside of uh, Berlin. Uh, he's in the center. And a few weeks before the allies arrived to liberate the camp where he was moved to, that uh, Pastor Bonhoeffer was killed for his devotion to a free and independent and religious um, Germany. However, when I encountered this uh, record, this remembrance from the doctor who served at that, that concentration camp, it moved me um, that somebody was so steadfast in his faith. He, 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 knew, he knew what he was doing. Um, and even though it pained the people around him to watch, that uh, to the very end, uh, he, he maintained his faith. Uh, this bit of, of poetry and prayer is included on the, the handout. Um, it's his from a, a posthumous publication. Uh, he did a lot of writings when he was in prison, which were smuggled out. And it's part of a, a longer prayer, um, which I'll help you find for you. Um, so in 1945, what do you know that the Allies, this, this is an, a U.S. Army chaplain who is going through a sea of Torahs that uh, the Allies, a cache, if you will, of Torahs, the Allies have discovered that uh, e even as synagogues were ransacked and burned, that something about the religiosity, something about the word of God, even in an alien religion to the National Socialists, that they felt a fear or respect of such that uh, they saved many of them and they were collected. So at this point, at the, toward the end of the war, this is a U.S. Army chaplain who is trying to figure out you know, which Torah came from which now defunct synagogue. But just the sheer scale of it was something that I found astonishing. So very few of the conversion uh, escapees, very few of the people who um, either they or their parents went to the Anglican priests and were baptized and got out. Very few of them testify uh, to their faith or to their journey. However, in the case of Ho Feng Shan, that here's one of the survivors um, who credits um, her life and her family's life being saved by his ultimately Christian uh, generosity. This is him in his next posting. Um, beautifully, for, uh, for years after serving in Vienna, uh, he remained in the diplomatic corps for China, and when Mao Zedong took over, he then became a diplomat for Taiwan, for the Republic of China. Um, yes. uh, so he, he finally retired after 40 years of uh, being a diplomat and lived out his life in San Francisco, founding a Lutheran church there. I'm making all these plugs for Lutherans. Uh, 
Hmm. Yeah. So, 1947, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee decided to honor two organizations, one of them the British Friends, the other the American Friends Service Committee. So what was founded in 1917 as a reaction to America going to war and wanting to provide an opportunity to the young men, because it was only young men, um, who were otherwise about to be drafted and did not want to go to war, something that would fit with the ideals of the Society of Friends, uh, an opportunity to serve, to, to serve their country, to serve their colleagues without fighting. 30 years later, um, after growing that vision beyond what those original 14 might have ever thought, that the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to the American Friends Service Committee. And Henry Cadbury, who along with Rufus Jones was one of the two co-founders of those original 14, was the one, he was chairing the, the board at the time, he went to Oslo, and he accepted the award on behalf of the committee. Now, that is the vision for week one. Um, Father, forgive, as will become all too clear when we get to week five, that the theme is trying to approach redemption when redemption is hard. Um, I, I myself uh, have been entirely privileged uh, to live in a land where I can express my thoughts, I can keep my thoughts to myself, um, and by and large, I'm left to live my life. So as an historian, to encounter times in our nation's or our world's history where the, the basic things that I take for granted are, uh, are what can get you killed, um, and then in the face of that, there's people who um, stand up and stand out. I, I find that I, I'm in awe um, to, to learn about uh, Dr. Ho, and that um, you know, he, at one point he had a gun held to his head um, as he's trying to give uh, the visa papers to a, a Jewish couple that he knew, and only his diplomatic credentials at that moment was what saved him, or Reverend Collard, who was the second Anglican priest there in Vienna, that uh, he got caught up by the Gestapo and such um, and was grilled because there was a mole in the British Embassy. And um, it, was, it was understood that this line out the door, when you're baptizing over 100 people a day in a sanctuary that holds 135-ish, that something unusual is happening. And it got tattled on, and so even as Again, he was able to use his diplomatic shield to escape with his own life. Um, that there were genuine mortal perils that these people faced with the inhumanity around them, that they, they sought for ways to try and redress that. Now, of course, in the larger scheme of what happened in Europe, there were other courageous men and women who likewise uh, risked their lives for the sake of others, um, whether they were Gentile or Jew. In this case, for me, the entree point for uh, this aspect of Father Forgive, um, my geography is southeastern Pennsylvania, and so Rufus Jones, um, the philosophy professor retired by the time this happens, is one of the characters, because my story is I use the real people, the real events. And so when I learned that he'd gone to Berlin in 1938, right after Kristallnacht, and I knew that he was a 75-year-old gent, I, 
I had this incongruous image. It just it did not make sense. Why would somebody leave his cushy retirement in leafy suburban Philadelphia to go to a place of outright danger and hatred? And yet, you know, he and his colleagues, after prayerful reflection, um, that it was decided we must do this. The German embassy and and the German ambassador in Washington, they'd gone to see him without success, and so they were going to go straight to the source. And when he was asked, he, he acceded. So um, from that, to, to learn other threads. So, you know, like as with uh, most historians, uh, when you begin to tease it at a, a thread that, that you're wanting to know more about, it ends up leading you in unexpected places. So uh, what, what had been a single story then became to branch out, um, and I, I came to then um, embrace some of these other men and women who were part of today's presentation. So please, 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 um, if there's any questions that you have either about what, what's been shared or what you would like to know, please ask away. Oh, hold on one. What was the position of the Anglican Church in England that they opposed crimes? What was their uh, perception of what was going on in Germany that they took that stance? And also, can you, uh, do you know what was going on in the United States and what attitude would have been toward, let's say, Rufus Jones and those people coming sure. over? Sure. Um, at the time, uh, both Britain and the United States were fixed in the immigration policies and quotas that they had. The, the British had somewhat greater allowance, but the, the Americans had a quota of just over 27,000 people a year that they would permit in from Germany. And when Austria got annexed by Germany, that same 27,000 was the, the macro number. And you had to go through all the regular channels. There, there was not, in the moment, diplomatically, a recognition of an acute crisis or the cusp of a, uh, an acute crisis. So in terms of relief organizations, just grabbing people and getting them out, it hadn't, it hadn't crystallized in most people's minds that that need was coming or was here. So um, while the three friends who went did have a desire and some means to effectuate the release, or you know, upon release to get people out, that uh, there, there wasn't a place for them to go yet, necessarily. Um, there was a conference in June, yes, in June of 1938, where 32 nations got together and said, essentially, how many will you take? The United States organized it, um, and Britain was there with all of her colonies or dominions. And the Dominican Republic, San Domingo, said, we'll take 100,000. Um, but most places said, we're, we're kind of full. Uh, or, um, Argentina didn't want any doctors, um, and no, Peru didn't want any doctors. Argentina was full. Um, maybe in Kenya, uh, they could take 500 families, or uh, in British Guyana, maybe 5,000 people. So um, at this conference in June, these global powers are, are trying to convince one another that you, that they, they might be willing to accept a large portion of these would-be immigrants, and nobody was, was moving on it. So y you have increasing pressures on the continent and no release valve. Meanwhile, um, in the mandate, which was Palestine and Transjordan, which was controlled by Britain, 
that um, there'd been legal and illegal immigration of Jews to there, and they were conflicting with the Arabs. So the, the, the Brits did not want to allow much more immigration of Jews to Palestine because of the existing frictions, and so legally that wasn't permitted uh, beyond a, a very small number. However, there was an, an, a, a good illegal trade of people trying to, you know, through Yugoslavia to Greece and then by a ship to get just on the beach in Haifa or something. Um, and once there, they were left alone. But um, the, the true desperation did not begin until November of 1938 when Kristallnacht happened and all of this damage was, was evident and it was irrevocable that in Germany for, for, for reasons that are fairly complex, th that they hadn't tried, the nasty people hadn't tried to, uh, to do to the Jewish population what was being experimented on um, on a smaller scale in Vienna. And thanks to uh, the success of the pushing people, pushing Jews out of the public square and dispossessing them and op making them pay for the privilege of leaving their native land, because of that success, it was then replicated on a larger scale come November in Germany, in Berlin proper. Um, did that answer part of the question? Oh, I'm sorry, yes. Um, so the, the Anglican Church um, ultimately by mid-1938 came out against the German aggressions um, and uh, what was known. And not nearly what we know today was known then. However, in intimations of it w were apparent. Um, and there was a great internal and public debate as to the veracity of these conversions. Um, did it dilute the existing Anglican baptisms? Did, did the fact that somebody in Vienna got baptized mean that my baptism is worth less? Um, but, you know, this is what people were thinking and expressing. Um, and the, the Archbishop of Canterbury essentially told the bishop responsible for those European uh, congregations, those European parishes, just tamp it down. I, I don't want it to be the headline. So that's why first uh, Hugh Grimes and then Fred Collard were taken off the job. Uh, Hugh Grimes wanted to go back. He'd, he'd been called in July of 38 to go and explain things in Canterbury, and then he was expecting himself to go back. And he was denied uh, by, by the church, by the Anglican church, the ability to go back, because they knew that he was gonna continue. Anybody who came that he wanted to help, he would help. Um, so. It, it was a controversial thing then, it still is now, primarily because in Judaism, if you accept that baptism, you have forever uh, distanced yourself from your, your birthright. It's behind you. Thank you. Uh, I'd like your response to a Rufus Jones, if, if I may. A, a story and then the, the, the question. The story is in the 1890s, there were two major figures in Quaker uh, publication. One was Rufus Jones, who published a work called The Friends Review. When the Spanish-American War came along, surprisingly, Rufus Jones favored the war. Um, now, he changed later on. Um, but the other publication was twice the size of The Friends Review and it was, came out of Cleveland. 
uh, a man named Walter Malone. Walter Malone was the much stronger peace advocate. In fact, he was passionate about that. Okay, in the early 1890s, two men came from Ohio to, to um, Philadelphia. One was a theologian, Rufus, uh, I'm sorry, Dugan Clark, who stood up in the Friends meeting in Philadelphia, told them where they were wrong, and they asked him to sit down. <laughs> uh, the other was Walter Malone, who, was, who came as the special guest of Rufus Jones. They were two kindred spirits. Walter walked up and down the aisle, waved his arms, and Jones said everybody loved him. Now, my question is, the, because Walter was there to talk about love, he wasn't there to tell you where you're wrong. Okay, my question is this. Why did Jones and the Philadelphia Friends move in the direction of affirming the sacredness of life, affirming uh, opposition to killing, to war? And why did, you may or may not want to do this, why did the Ohio Friends move in the exact opposite direction? And by the 1950s, the Ohio Friends were very pro-military. So uh, my question is, why, what is it, as Quakerism was kind of breaking up at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, why did Philadelphia move in the direction of peace, the AFSC, for example? I haven't researched that one yet, so I can't, can't honestly formulate an answer. The doctor has a question. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, John. One of the things that impressed me the most about this was that those three people, by praying and talking with the bad Gestapos, that they convinced them to do something really good and something they, they responded to that religion. And I think that we need to... Uh, that being a, a lot of German in me, uh, I, and seeing the, the wonderful German Christians that I grew up with over in Wayne County, and uh, knowing that, that there was a, a great deal of good Christianity in Germany before this happened. And I think that response is probably partly for the, the goodness that was in that uh, ethnic group at the time, and you know, what is it that makes made them go along with the madness of Hitler and his forces? I mean, obviously, there had to be part of them that went to Sunday school and that sort of thing in church. Uh, now, now there's fear because you know if they shot the Germans too if they uh, didn't uh, kowtow, but uh, it, it just. I have to give them some credit for their to, uh, to, religion to, before. To the question, um, when Hitler came to power in 1933, um, he'd made an arrangement of sorts with chiefly the Augsburg Lutheran German church that we will not interfere with your realm. We're not going to try and take your property if you keep quiet. If uh, um, so there was an, a non-interference arrangement at the outset. And so 
uh, part of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer reacted to was when his organizational church says, we're not going to comment on the increasing evils that are coming from Berlin. And skipping around, the, the original concentration camps were work camps, but not death camps. It wasn't until 1941 that that aspect of what we all shudder with came to pass. However, there were people who were worked to death in the concentration camps from the 1930s on. And so whether you were communist or a gypsy or a pacifist, which was against what the Nazis wanted, um, or Jewish, that you might be sent to a concentration camp. It might be a six-month term or on, the, on uh, the Fuhrer's 50th birthday. Okay, we'll have a general amnesty and we'll, 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 we'll let out 100 or so from this camp. Um, so there, there were people who served time in concentration camps, got out, and then got out of Europe. And for most of those, the, the demand was, don't say a word. Th these are people who have survived six months or longer of hard labor. They are emaciated. They are s skeletons, barely walking. And the command to them by their peers is don't speak to this evil. The reason being that there were still family that were in Germany or in Austria or the Sudetenland or wherever. And so if, if the evil was, was, was acknowledged, then there could be retribution against the people left behind. So there was this very powerful, within, within the Jewish community, silence. I mean, it, it would be you know, akin to the omerta for the Italian mafia kind of thing. But uh, e even as some of the observers um, saw things and reported them, that from the Jewish community to the larger world, that there was, th there was a, a wall that was built in terms of communications. Um, Kristallnacht in November of 1938, there were moments, a lot of moments, of individual uh, heroism where Christians fought for their neighbors, where members even of the National Socialist Party who disagreed with, why are you going to burn this business? I mean, it employs 50 people here. It, it's, you know, it's counterproductive. Who stood in the way of the hoodlums. And, and those individual acts of bravery need to be celebrated. Now, for me, in my storytelling and what I do in my novels, I try and find moments like that. In, in the series title, and I'm gonna wrap up in a sec, in the series title, and the website URL is on the, the sheets and you're welcome to look at it and I can give you more information later. Um, the series title is Marian Mercies. Because for me, in, in, every, in every volume, there comes a moment where there's a personal decision, where a character decides to extend mercy and in that act of mercy, the, the history of that moment and thus the direction of the narrative and our country, what develops in our country, is changed. That because of somebody recognizing the humanity in somebody else, somebody who is, is not able to, to succeed by themselves, and so this act of mercy transforms that moment and thus you know, enables that person to carry forward that we are here today. So for me, finding that in, in these stories is important too. We have a question, and then it's almost time. Define the word Marian as you're using it with Marian Mercies. How oh, are you oh defining Marian? Um, Marian is a reference to the geography of where the stories take place. That um, it, it's important for me, and, and this is you know historical fiction, 
um, that it's based in reality, the geography of southeastern Pennsylvania, and of the place names, that Marion is one of the ones that goes back the farthest and c continues to the present. So th there are certainly Native American names for different areas there. There's, there's other names, non-Welsh names, but of, of the, the labels that Marion is the one that most people uh, might have heard of as opposed to Radnor or Villanova or something. Um, and I'd already come across the notion of mercies being integral to each and every volume. So I like the alliterative, alliterative, take three, alliterative quality of it. You know, it's, it's interesting to me that the same countries that didn't want those doctors, they, w they took the Nazis uh, and hid them uh, <laughs> a few years later. <laughs> That's kind of funny to me. Well, if there's no other question. Oh. All right. I have a real quick question. And this is something that I, I think we all need to think about. As a Christian, we take baptism so seriously. I know when my son was born, I wouldn't take him any place until he was like six days old, but I wanted him baptized. I f that act, even though it's an act, it's so sacred. How do we feel when we know people really aren't true to that act, taking it? Is it, is it, is it frivolous then? Is it I mean, I, it's something that I have to wrestle with myself. There's a, a Latin phrase, um, I won't bother with that, uh, that to the effect um, that I will be a friend to you until the altars. Essentially, I will be your friend until it is contrary to my own religion. And to appreciate that in Judaism, that to take baptism is a refutation of all that your heritage, your, 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 your being represents to that moment. However, when the choice is that or an all but certain death, given what's going on in the streets, given the disappearances, give, given the, the thugs, and to, to have that offered by you know, a cleric in good conscience, to me, that, that is a very thorny thing, but it, it's also, and for me, it's, it's ultimately affirming that, that people thought to make the offer, people wrestled with it, people accepted it. Some of them, yes, they, they, they did it as a matter of convenience to save their own neck or to save their family. But others have stayed with the faith. So um, I, I'm happy you know, to, to think about it going forward because I don't know in that moment um, if I had to convert to get out. Yes, ma'am. The picture that comes to mind for me is Moses in the bulrushes. I mean, his mother said, okay, I'm not going to raise you as a Jewish kid. You can go be a, an Egyptian, you know, and because of that, uh, you know, the entire nation was saved. Right. Yes, Terry. Um, this has been really interesting to me, Andrew, and um, one of the things I wanted to share with the class before we go to church is that I, I walk every morning when it's really quiet, and we live near the Central Allied plant, and there's a, a very large asphalt burner. And so often when I walk and I hear the asphalt burner, I am reminded of the death camps and the concentration camps, and I'm put into a place of just, whoa, how did people hear this and not respond? 
and, and would I respond, and what would my response be? I mean, I'm hearing it almost every day, this asphalt burner thinking of the fires and the people who died. And, and I can only hope that in my faith that I would have some kind of response, and, and it helps me almost just be able to decide, today I have to respond in a loving way to the people that I meet. And so um, I just wanted to share that because if you walk over there and you can hear the asphalt burner, you can't help but think about it. Thank you, Terry. And for me, in closing, uh, and we'll explore this further going forward, that the Father forgive is just two words. And yes, it is a reference to Luke 23. Um, but the reason why it's not Father forgive them is because what is being asked, what is being petitioned is not just us asking God's forgiveness on somebody else, but God being asked for forgiveness by us. That when, when, there's, when there's something going on that's, that's not right and we don't respond, and we don't respond with love, then we need deep self-examination and to seek forgiveness for that inaction. So thank you for, for sharing this opportunity and with these folks who, who did act in the face of, of great danger. All right.